So for today's episode, we're going to be talking about one of our co-founders, Dr. Bob Smith, and a little bit about his story from the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's right. All right. So this is Dr. Bob's Nightmare on page 171 of the Big Book, 4th edition, starting at the top. A co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, the birth of our society dates from his first day of permanent sobriety, June 10th, 1935. To 1950, the year of his death, he carried the AA message to more than 5,000 alcoholic men and women, and to all these he gave his medical services without thought of a charge. In this prodigy of service, he was well assisted by Sister Ignatia at St. Thomas Hospital in Akron, Ohio, one of the greatest friends our fellowship will ever know. So right off the beginning, it's talking about he worked with 5,000 alcoholic men and women. 5,000. I've been to conferences that weren't even that big. It's half my town. <laughs> what a, you live in a metropolitan area. What are you talking about? <laughs> That's right. So Dr. Bob, so here from the very beginning, it's talking about that this guy did, he even gave his services, his medical services without charge. That's amazing. That is amazing. And this is one of the things that I like. Before we get too deep into his story, Bill W. referred to Dr. Bob as his rock, his rock, his stability. And I think that his dedication to service, that quiet, humble service, is really what speaks so well for our founder, um, Dr. Bob. So just for the record, Dr. Bob, his first day of permanent sobriety was in 1935. He passed in 1950. Yep. So he worked with 5,000 alcoholics in just 15 years. 15 years. He was on it. He was all He over. was on it. So when somebody's a little too busy to work with a new guy, I might remind him, you know, there was one guy that in a 15-year period worked with 5,000 people. But, you know, what did he know? <laughs> all right, continuing on. I was born in a small New England village of about 7,000 souls. The general moral standard was, as I recall it, far above the average. No beer or liquor was sold in the neighborhood except at the state liquor agency, where perhaps one might procure... Let's start that over. Mm -hmm. I was born in a small New England village of about 7,000 souls. The general moral standard was, as I recall it, far above the average. No beer or liquor was sold in the neighborhood except the state liquor agency where perhaps one might procure a pint if he could convince the agent that he really needed it. Hold on. This does not sound like a good place to live. A this sounds like an awful agency. place to live. This is, this is worse than a dry county from what it sounds like. They're moral and they don't have alcohol in there. I would not have hung out with these people. What is a state liquor agency? No one knows. That's how crazy it is. I have actually been to a state where they had one, and you could not buy liquor anywhere in the entire state except from a state store. And the state store was operated from 8 until 5, and it closed at 5 o'clock. And so if you didn't get there by 5 o'clock, you didn't get liquor. I was in training at the time, and I was in class from... Eight until five. That is bullshit. 
and it was a problem. Yeah. <laughs> so so I would park my car in the grass outside the door. Oh man. So so that at like four forty six. I would run out the back door and dive into my car <laughs> and come sliding up sideways into this store and hope that the son of a bitch didn't lock me out. <laughs> I can just see Mark Mission Impossible prepping throughout the day, right? right? Like his trainer, every day at 4.45, Mark has to use the restroom for 45 minutes, right? <laughs> He's just like, <clears throat> I gotta... <clears throat> Throw. <coughs> I gotta go to the bathroom. I'll be right back. <coughs> Just give me a second. Mm. And as part of that training, every day as soon as class was over, uh, there was a cafeteria and they would serve us our evening meal for free. Skip that. However, <laughs> <laughs> if you were going to the state liquor store, you didn't get the free dinner. No. And so uh, uh, the... The hotel we were staying in uh, had a three-for-one cocktail hour, so I would go get the liquor. I couldn't afford to do except the three-for-one, and and I'd get like six plates of buffalo wings, mm -hmm. and uh, I lived on that for almost a month. Holy cow. It was good stuff. <laughs> we'll give you some heartburn, though. Yes. <laughs> Which we'll find out later. That's you right. can cure with drinking. That's right. <laughs> a doctor told me that. That's right. Without this proof, the expectant purchaser would be forced to depart empty-handed with none of what I later came to believe was the great panacea for all human ills. Now, Seth actually looked this up. What's panacea, Seth? It is actually the cure for human illnesses. Okay. Or the, uh, the go-to remedy. I gotcha. So what this guy's saying here, Dr. Bob's essentially saying that he found the all-time greatest cure for everything. The best of the best. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the true alcoholic. <laughs> Men who had liquor shipped in from Boston or New York by express were looked upon with great distrust and disfavor by most of the good townspeople. The town was well supplied with churches and schools in which I pursued my early educational activities. My father was a professional man of recognized ability, and both my father and mother were most active in church affairs. Both father and mother were considerably above the average in, in intelligence. So it sounds like, so far, he's a good kid, lives in a good community, and he's got good parents. Goes to church. Great great start. Yeah. You know, no reason as of yet, and I, and I love speakers that talk about this, like, because my, parent drank, my parents drink, that doesn't make me an alcoholic, right? And here's the opposite side of that coin, which is like, because my parents were good parents, that doesn't mean I was going to be a good non-drinker. <laughs> then it says, unfortunately for me, I was the only child, which perhaps engendered the selfishness which... <clears throat> Unfortunately for me, I was the only child, which perhaps engendered the selfishness which played such an important part in bringing on my alcoholism. And why is he talking about that? What does our book say about selfishness and self-centeredness? It doesn't say alcohol is the root of our trouble. It says selfishness and self-centeredness. So he's calling it out early. I'm an only child. I'm spoiled rotten by good parents, right? So I developed this innate selfishness early which will later on lead to some really bad decisions. Well, some of us here may have been only children. 
and may have suffered from selfishness as well. But I'm not sure exactly who that would be. Yeah, could it, be any of us. Could yeah. be any of us, yeah. Now, just going out on a limb here, although this person may or may not have been an only child, I'm sure he was altruistic from his very first breath. Except for what I want to do for myself. <laughs> awesome. From childhood through high school, I was more or less forced to go to church, Sunday school and evening service, Monday night Christian endeavor, and sometimes to Wednesday evening prayer meeting. This had the effect of making me resolve that when I was free from parental domination, I would never again darken the doors of church. This resolution I kept steadfastly for the next 40 years, except when circumstances made it seem unwise to absent myself. What? What you say? Our founder, the guy that's known as the quiet Christian, Dr. Bob, had a problem with organized religion? So, wait a minute. If I'm a newcomer and I'm coming into AA bitching about religious people left and right, there's a chance I might not be the only one. As a matter of fact, it looks like both of our founders had the same stinking problem that 90% of the people that walk through the door do. So arm yourself with that knowledge so that you can pull a new guy to the back of the book and go, look, dude, it was both of our founders felt this way. Danny, I think you're overacting a little bit. <laughs> I, I mean, just because a guy doesn't go to church for, say, 40 years... <laughs> It doesn't mean he has a problem with organized religion. No, no, no. I mean, did you see the list of his, his church schedule throughout the week? Yes. I mean, he was there all week. And I could really relate to this because I may or may not have had a father that was a pastor for yes. 35 years. Yep. So I was, I basically lived in the church as a kid. And I thought the same thing, man, when I get out of here, I'm going to get to sleep in on Sundays. Yep. And I love his end, too. Check this out at the end. He's talking about how, like, I didn't go for 40 years unless, and this is the caveat, it would be unwise to absent myself. And I think, this is just me gesturing, but I think that he's he's alluding to his selfishness, right? So if I'm going to be a future bigwig doctor, and I've got clients all throughout the community, and this is back in the day where looking good was the most important thing. What people thought about you, I mean, there wasn't the internet, there wasn't all this crazy stuff, so word of mouth was big. And if a well-known doctor didn't go to the Christmas service, I mean... This is a community built on those churches. And you can tell this is a high standing. Like these people all have high morals. They're pretty good town, good people. And they expect you to be there regardless of whether you're going to darken the doors the entire rest of the year or not. It doesn't matter, right? So I like that he's like, he's like, yeah, I mean, uh, <clears throat> I'll go if I can get something for it. For it. <laughs> I'll go if I can get something for it. But that's it. All right. Then it says... After high school came four years in one of the best colleges in the country where drinking seemed to be a major extracurricular activity. Almost everyone seemed to do it. I did it more and more and had lots of fun without much grief either physical or financial. I seemed to be able to snap back the next morning better than most of my fellow drinkers who were cursed or perhaps blessed with a great deal of morning after nausea. So this guy's already... Got got signs, right? Like, he can drink his brains out and wake up the next morning and be just right back to it. No big deal. I don't know. I don't know if there's a lot of non-normal drinkers that can drink their absolute brains out down a fifth of vodka or 
12-pack of beer, whatever he's drinking, and wake up the next day and be like, yeah, it's cool. No big deal. Completely normal. Normal people feel this way. And I love that he prefaced like, you know, I had this gift. Uh, might have been a curse. I had this gift. Uh, it might actually have been a curse. I love that he prefaces with that. Never once in my life have I had a headache, which in fact leads me to believe that I was an alcoholic almost from the start. My whole life seemed to be centered around doing what I wanted to do without regard for the rights, wishes, or privileges of anyone else. A state of mind which became more and more predominant as the years passed. I was graduated summa cum laude in the eyes of the drinking fraternity, but not in the eyes of the dean. <laughs> so that sentence before the end yes. absolutely hit me between the eyes because that was my experience. You know, my whole life centered around doing what I wanted to do. Yep. Without regard for the rights, wishes, or privileges of anyone else. Yep. A state of mind which became more and more predominant as the years passed. And that was my story. Yeah. I can relate to it as well. I mean, <clears throat> there has to be... I. It just from my own personal experience, there has to be at some point for me where I really just stop thinking about anyone else at all. I just am only concerned with my fun and my feelings. Period, point blank. That's it. And I got there just like he did pretty darn early. And it only got worse. It didn't get better. It got worse. It. The only time I really can remember consciously thinking about the uh, rights, wishes, privileges of anyone else was if it was uh, a woman. Yeah. And I had something on my mind. You were going to get yeah. something for it. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I didn't give a shit what men, what guys thought. Right. That's right. Because I, uh, I might have been bigger than most of them. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> so <clears throat> with, with my experience on that as well, and I kind of want to hear from Seth on this. So for me too, like... I, I, maybe maybe what I just said wasn't 100% factual because there were times where I did take into deep consideration what your wishes, your ideas, your thoughts, and your feelings were. But I assure you, it was because I was paying attention so that I could manipulate you better. Yeah. Yep. I get that. I can relate to that too. Um, I was like the master manipulator. I would take, I would listen to you just so I could use it against you later. Absolutely, in whatever fashion that I could. That's, that's how right. I did it, and it worked great. Yeah, that's why one of the reasons if you're listening to this, and especially if you're in your first year, all I can say is don't try to lie to somebody with time. We're so we did it for so long. I got so good at reading people's body language. People would think that I was like, I had some sort of gift or psychic or something. I was like, no, I'm just full of shit. I've been full of shit all my life. So I know what full of shit looks like. It looks just like Seth every day. <laughs> Filled to the brim. Yes. The next three years I spent in Boston, Chicago, and Montreal in the employ of a large manufacturing concern. I'm going to start that over. Sure. The next three years I spent in Boston, Chicago, and Montreal in the employ of a large manufacturing concern selling railway supplies, gas engines of all sorts, and many other items of heavy hardware. During these years, I drank as much as my purse permitted, still without paying too great a penalty, although I was beginning to have the morning jitters at times. 
I lost only half, only a half a day's work during these three years. It has begun. <laughs> when the jitters start, it's bad news bears after that. He's already starting to get them. And he's still pretty early. This mid-20s, I'd say, from what yes. it sounds like. So he's getting the jitters at a really, really early age. I love in all these stories that they try to sugarcoat it a little bit. Right. I drank as much as my purse permitted, still without paying too great a penalty. Although, (laughs) I was starting to get the morning jitters, which you don't get unless you're pretty much a raging alcoholic. Yeah, small small (laughs) caveat. It's like, I really wasn't having any, what was the other story? I really wasn't having any big problems, except for the fact that I hated my life and everybody in it. Yeah, but he has some serious justification here. I lost only a half day's work. Yeah, that's in it. those three years. So actually, I was done pretty it's good. It's not that. Yeah, bad. and I frankly, I agree. I agree. <laughs> that is a great three year record for an alcoholic. Oh. If you're drinking to the point you have morning jitters and you have that is kind of a gold star on Doctor Bob. Like, dude, good for you, holding it together. All right. My guess is the half he missed was the first half. <laughs> <laughs> He didn't go to work and go home at noon and yeah. take a nap. Yeah. <laughs> they don't call him the afternoon jitters. That's right. <laughs> My next move was to take up the study of medicine, entering one of the largest universities in the country. There I took up the business of drinking with much greater earnestness than I had previously shown. On account of my enormous capacity for beer, I was elected to membership in one of the drinking societies and soon became one of the leading spirits. Many mornings I have gone to classes and even though fully prepared, would turn and walk back to the fraternity house because of my jitters, not daring to enter the classroom for fear of making a scene should I be called on for recitation. There's so much in that. So much in that paragraph. So the one that hit me the very first time I read it was I'm going, a membership in a drinking society? Yes. <laughs> they didn't have one of those where I went to school. Yeah. Or I would have liked to join. Uh, but then they give it away yeah. <laughs> in the next sentence. They said, oh, yeah, I would turn and walk back to the fraternity. Yes. <laughs> he made it sound so f- sophisticated yes. this time. Yes. But, the secret society, the skull and bones. And then you find out, just a frat. <laughs> So I, I was a fraternity member, and I did... Maybe. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah I, I may have potentially have been at some point <laughs> in my life. But, um, and, and I think it was a drinking society. Yeah. I was also one of the leading spirits. Yes. <laughs> so the strange thing about that, too, the word spirits... If you look into it, so not only is it another word for alcohol, but back in the day, they used to think that they were one and the same. Like he was getting the spirit in him, being uh, like catching, speaking in tongues. Seth, you're more familiar with this than the rest of us. Speaking in (laughs) tongues. Speaking in Seth. Right. (laughs) So if I was speaking like Seth was, that and being an extreme drunkard looked similar back in the day, right? And you got to check it if you want to get just really into the word spirits, look into some of the Native American stuff. And it is crazy how closely they run side by side, right? So he's getting spirits in him and then he's becoming one of the leading spirits. And I do picture Mark as just this absolute maniac. Can't you see it in the fraternity? Like up on the table, like just conducting the show. You know what I mean? Just running the deal. 
I wish that were true. <laughs> but that would require me to get away from the keg. Yes. He was the guy doing it's the keg hard, thing. It's hard. It's <laughs> hard to get up and lead the group when you are tied to the keg. Yes. I, I came up with something I thought was ingenious. Yes. I really did. So everybody would get customized mugs. Nice. You know, it would be a little bigger than like an eight ounce glass. And Fancy. So a little, you know, thing with a handle on it and all that. And um, that, that I had one of those for a little while, but that still didn't quite satisfy it. So <laughs> what I did was. Did you get you a bucket? <laughs> I, I bought a small waste basket. <laughs> And so when you have a keg, they, they have, uh, you know, they, they underneath the, 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 the tap, mm -hmm. they let, they usually have a wastebasket to catch the runover. Yeah. And so if you, if you would just rotate your wastebasket with their wastebasket, you've always got a full wastebasket to drink out of. Bingo. There's nothing classier than drinking out of a wastebasket. And, 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 <laughs> and you don't have to wait in line. <laughs> There's nobody's gonna gonna get in your way if you're trying to get the yeah. drag bucket. <laughs> I like too how Mark was explaining to Seth and I. You know this part of the keg, and we're like, yeah, 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 yeah we do. As a matter of fact, you're kind of preaching to the choir on that one. But yes, and okay. So what does he do here? He, this guy is going to take tests, and he goes back home. Right? So he's so he's so jittery, he's drank so much, he's on a way to take a test. Sounds like a medical exam. And he's just like, can't do it. <laughs> no way. I gotta turn around and go back to the fraternity. Cause I'm gonna embarrass myself. Especially if you have to give any kind of oral presentation. No way. No way. Count me out. The resuscitation that he calls that he speaks of here, he would make a scene if he was called on for a Recitation. Yeah. Did I just correct Mark on a word? Yes! That's yes! the first time. Listener, mark this down in your book. <laughs> this is the day that I have corrected Mark on a word. Probably first time in my life. Uh, kind of a big deal. Unfortunately, I think it was incorrectly, but uh, you know, who's, who's going to... Uh... Mark's Googling it! We're about to find out. I'm pretty sure it's recitation, but I That's will leave it at that. That's how I read that. it. Yeah. <clears throat> I just, no big deal. You know, I was spelling B champ like five years ago. <laughs> recitation. It doesn't say recitation. 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 No kidding. Recitation. So, listener, just so you know, he is pulling up his phone and shoving it in my face. <laughs> and gosh dang it, I lose. Okay, he was right. Uh, yeah, recitation. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> But I was really wrong the first time, so... Seth was just testing us yeah, both. Yeah, I was just seeing if you guys... Glad we have Seth here, Mark. Okay. Holy cow. All right, moving on. <laughs> this went from bad to worse until sophomore spring, when after a prolonged period of drinking, I made up my mind that I could not complete my course, so I packed my grip and went south to spend a month on a large farm owned by a friend of mine. When I got the fall... <clears throat> When I got the fog out of my brain, I decided that quitting school was very foolish and that I had better return and continue my work. When I reached school, I discovered the faculty had other ideas on the subject. After much argument, they allowed me to return and take all my exams, all of which I passed creditably. Okay, so let's take a second here to talk about the fact that this guy goes to a friend's house because things are so bad across the board that he needs to just get his stuff together for a little bit. 
Within a month, he's like, wait, dude, you dropped out of school? Go back. What are you thinking? You're throwing away your college? And why did he have that kind of sanity come to him? Because he was no longer under the fog of alcohol. And I do like that he is the second physician in the book so far that we've read that has used the word fog when it's talking about speaking to an alcoholic and how they think and go through a thought process. I love that because it's also, it just drives home what they talk about in working with others about how it's better if his brain's de defogged before we try and work with them. Meaning that you don't make good decisions on that stuff. You just don't. I mean, my best decisions like move the dancer from the Grey Goose Inn. You know, what's, what's the worst that could happen? And then two months later when my house is on fire and I'm trying to run out the back door and I'm like, baby, I love you. And then I can't understand why my life's all messed up. That's what he's talking about here. He gets out in the country, gets a little uh, out of the fog and a little sanity comes back to him. And then he's like, I got to get back to school. The only problem is he didn't leave on good terms. But they were much disgusted and told me they would attempt to struggle along without my presence. <laughs> well, how nice. <laughs> Mark pointed this out to me earlier. So the first time I read this, I thought what he was saying was he goes back and he asked to take these tests. And they were like, yeah, sure. Well, you'll take the test. And the way I read it was incorrectly. I thought they were saying like, Okay, it'll be tough because we know you're drunk, but we'll try and carry on because you did pass your test. And what Mark's pointing out is, no, 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 no. They gave him a slap in the face. They're like, it doesn't matter that you passed the test. We just prefer we'll struggle on without you and your genius here at this academic place of learning. Bye-bye. <laughs> Don't let the door hit you on where the good door... <laughs> Don't let the door hit you where the good Lord split you. <laughs> After many painful discussions, they finally gave me my credits. And I migrated to another of the leading universities of the country and entered as a junior that fall. There, my drinking began so much worse that the boys in the fraternity house where I lived felt forced to send for my father, who made a long journey in the vain endeavor to get me straightened around. This had little effect, however, for I kept on drinking and used a great deal more hard liquor than in former years. Mark, did you ever have to call a for someone's father in the frat house because I, of their drinking? No, I never have. <laughs> never have. If you're getting... We've had to call the police a couple times, but, <laughs> but never the father. If they're calling your father in a fraternity, yes. you are probably a complete shit show. Yes! Like, that's yes. the only reason that they would do that. In a frat, it's he called it a drinking society, society earlier, and you know when the drinkers say you drink too much, you have a problem. Absolutely. You've crossed the line. Yes! I heard this girl one time say, when your drug dealers tell you to stop drinking and your drinking friends tell you to stop doing drugs, you got a problem. <laughs> Coming up to final exams, I went on a particularly strenuous spree. When I went in to write the examinations, my hand trembled so I could not hold a pencil. I passed in at least three absolutely blank books. I was, of course, soon on the carpet, and the upshot was that I had to go back for two more quarters and remain absolutely dry if I wished to graduate. This I did, and proved myself satisfactory to the faculty, both in deportment and scholastically. 
So, you know, I, the th couple things on this page, I, I just, one at the very top of the page, you know, he gets kicked out of this school. Yep. And he's not invited back. And he migrated to another leading university. Yeah, like a duck. <laughs> so I'm like, wow, you must be a pretty smart fella. Yeah. Uh, if if somebody else is gonna, is going to keep you, yeah, it wasn't his tests. That's it wasn't right. his test that kept him out of the school. That, he it, passed those. That's exactly right. So yeah, and so for them to uh, for him to hand in three absolutely blank exam books, you know, and for them to say, well, you know, if if you if you can come back and and stay dry for two more quarters, uh, you know. We'll look at letting you graduate. Yep. But, I mean, the people are going out on a limb. Yes. And they're going out on a limb because they see something there. He's not dumb. He's not dumb. He's not dumb when he's there and he's apparently sober, like it's talking about here at the end of the paragraph. He's doing great. Right? They even says, both in deportment and scholasticity. Scholastically. You can tell I went to college. Scholastically. Scholasticity. <laughs> yes. Yes. So they're saying, like, look, man, when I sober up, I do great. You know, I do great. And I love too, man, my alcoholism. And listener, I would ask you this question. What's a time to where you pulled off a feat of not drinking that your brain never let you forget? Never let you forget. Always bring it up. Always bring it up. I had this time where there was this girl I was dating. She, I thought she was the just the sun shined out of her backside. I just thought that she was just the, the best thing since sliced bread. And she came to me about my drinking one day and was like, I'm leaving for two days. And when I come back, we got to have a talk. And I, so I made up my mind. You know that part in the book where it's like, surely he'd stop for her. She's so darn pretty. Well, I said, I'm not drinking for two days. She leaves. It was the worst two days of my life up to that point. It was absolute hell. I fought it tooth and nail every moment of every day. She came back. I was like, I, I mean, I was almost in sweats trying to tell her, like, I just, I, you, I want you to know I have not drank for two whole days. And I am so glad you're back because I wanted to tell you that. And she's like, oh. Oh, yeah, uh, so I've been playing with my musician friends. We've actually been wasted for like the last two days. I was going to ask if you wanted to join us because we were going to keep partying tonight. I was so angry. I was so, I was like, I stayed sober for nothing. And my heart was broken. It was a bad deal. And you drank with the band. Of course. <laughs> what are you talking about? It was like somebody had just tossed a spark into lit gasoline. I mean, I became this forest fire overnight. However, later on down the road, when family, friends were talking to me about stopping drinking, my brain's like, we could do that. Easy. Remember Easy. that time? Remember that time? Remember the good old days? We could just quit drinking whenever we wanted. No problem, Danny. I mean, you thought about taking your own life a couple of times during that 48 hours. But other than that, things were great. It was nothing. It was nothing. <laughs> so, how long's a quarter? Three three months, three months, give or take. Yep. So that's like close to half a year. Yep. He didn't have anything to drink for half a year. Yes. That had to be kind of painful. I bet. Half a year. Yeah. That's a, uh, that's a long time. Can you believe how many times he probably used that? 
oh my gosh, I, I my brain would have never let me forget yeah. Yeah. half of half a year to go from jitters so bad that I have to turn in blank tests three times. I can't. I'm going back to the frat house because I can't be called on, or I'll be like, I can't even be called on, and then to just go stone cold drive for six months. My alcoholism would have never shut up, never shut up about it. All right. Then it says, I conducted myself so credibly that I was able to secure a much coveted internship in a Western city where I spent two years. During these two years, I was kept so busy that I hardly left the hospital at all. Consequently, I could not get into any trouble. And I think this is another dangerous spot, too, to where our alcoholism will not only remember, but when we try and approach this spiritual concept that AA has, it's like, spiritual, spiritual, we just need to be busy, right? We need to get more books. We need to join a, a club. We need to do some stuff. Hobby. Right? I'll get a hobby. Oh, <laughs> get, a, yeah. get a new hobby. Get, a, get into tennis, you know, whatever it may be. And this is another time where his alcoholism, man, I could see why later on he was having such a go with it. These are really hard facts to ignore. When those two years were up, I opened an office downtown. I had some money, all the time in the world, and considerable stomach trouble. There we go. I soon discovered <laughs> that a couple drinks would alleviate my gastric distress, at least for a few hours at a time, so it was not at all difficult for me to return to my <laughs> former excessive indulgence. So what are we masters of doing? And it talks about this, I think it's in Bill's story, where he's talking about, like, we have this aptitude to build up these wonderful structures for a fantastic life. And then as soon as we start drinking, just tear it down with a series of sprees. Just in six months, he went from being the campus drunk to the campus collegiate, gets this awesome job, right? Things are looking up. But you know, he gets a little bit of an ulcer. And what's good for an ulcer? I will tell you this, medically, it is not drinking. But as Seth said earlier, with the fancy P word, pancreas, or whatever it was. <laughs> pancreas, whatever word he had to look up from the 30s. Panacea. Panacea, yeah. yes. The panacea is that he was like, you know what makes my ulcers feel better is drinking. I don't think it actually makes your ulcers better. I think it makes you anesthetized to the pain, yeah. which I understand. Considerable stomach trouble. Yeah. <laughs> and the drinks would alleviate my gastric distress. Yes. At least for a few hours at a time. Yeah. <laughs> he throws it in there like, no, 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 this is temporary. I don't get to have a couple of pops in the day and it goes away. I got to keep drinking. So it's like you can even hear the alcoholism in his writing. Like, no, no, no. It's this like is temporary. Justifying it. Yes, exactly. Like only for a few hours few and hours. I got to re-up. That's you know? <laughs> It's medicine. Yeah. It's medicine. By this time, I was beginning to pay very dearly physically and in hope of relief, voluntarily incarcerated myself at least a dozen times in one of the local sanitariums. Whoa. Hmm. He is committing himself. That's like saying, I'm going to treatment half a dozen times because he knows internally. This is not saying his wife, who we'll meet later in the story. This is not saying a relative took him up there. This is saying, like, I know it's so bad. I commit myself. And back in the day, this wasn't like... Nowadays, I mean, treatment's covered in your insurance plan at work, right? It's just... 
I want to say everybody, but that's just because I'm an alcoholic and everybody I know has been to treatment. But the truth is, not right. everybody goes to treatment. Speak for yourself. Right. But it is a part of our, our lexicon today is that people have gone to treatment. It's not unheard of to just be talking to somebody and they say, yeah, I went to treatment. But back then, it sure was. Back then, to be a doctor and commit yourself to a uh, uh, sanitarium six times, holy cow. It was real deal bad for him. Six is a lot. That's a big number. Yeah. I think it says at least a dozen times. That would be 12. Yeah. So double six. So I'm good with words. I'm, I'm a mathematician. Good with <laughs> All right. <clears throat> so first, Mark corrected me. Now, Seth corrected me. I don't know what voodoo doll they have in the background to have made me switch places with Seth for this episode, but I will own it and I will take it. I'm so smart. A dozen? <laughs> Twelve times? That's a lot. That's a lot. That's more than we previously thought was yeah. a lot. <laughs> That's twice as much as what I thought a lot was a while ago when yep. Danny was helping. <laughs> <laughs> and so I actually did reverse alcoholic math. You, you ever notice how if you ask an alcoholic, like, what's better, six or 12? It's only in treatment where we'll say six is better. That's the only time. <laughs> And our brain just naturally, like somebody asks you how many times you've been to treatment, you naturally take off three or four times to make it sound not as bad. Yeah. It's like a girl talking about how many guys she slept with. You know that's not the real number. You know, yeah. (laughs) I heard a speaker one time say. I'm guessing it's she's not rounding up. (laughs) Make herself look better. That's right. I heard a speaker one time say, you can just, when when it's over 10, you can just say several. You can just say several. Exactly. He's been there several times. I was between Scylla and Charybdis. I'm sorry. I don't... Okay. I was between Scylla and Charybdis now because if I did not drink, my stomach tortured me. And if I did, my nerves did the same thing. After three years of this, I wound up in a local hospital where they attempted to help me. But I would get my friends to smuggle me a court or I would steal the alcohol about the building so that I, could, so that I got rapidly worse. Finally, my father had to send a doctor out for Hold my... On. time out. Mark, you want to tell us what Scylla and Charybdis is? Well, I didn't know. And I've uh, read this book a few times. And so uh, I used my handy-dandy uh, Google uh, Play thing here. And Scylla and Charybdis were uh, m- uh, from the Greek mythology. The Greek uh, poet Homer in his... Uh, poem about the odyssey cool there was these there was this uh Scylla was a horrible six-headed monster who lived on a rock on one side of a narrow strait uh-huh. well on the other side of the same little narrow strait that the ships had to go through was charybdis and it was a whirlpool so they really had to stay away from the whirlpool because the whirlpool would suck them down yeah so but if they got too far away from the whirlpool on the other side, then Scylla would uh, grab them and uh, seize them and devour their sailors. Holy cow. So uh, it, it describes a situation in which there's no clear-cut path. Yep. There's two bad places to yes. be. <laughs> what the country folk would say, between a rock and a hard place. Yes. I like that. That's if, right. there, if there were any country folk here. 
Yeah. Man, and I got to tell you, <laughs> have you ever been, ask yourself, can you relate to Dr. Bob in that have you ever just been between a rock and a hard place? Have I'm damned if I do and I'm damned if I don't. There's no, And that's how I got with the jumping off place. It's like I can't imagine a life with alcohol or without it. Both seem like hell. And that's what he's going through here. Both seem like hell. Yeah, it seemed like at the end of you know my drinking career, every decision was like this. Yes, absolutely. I was picking the less of two evils pretty much every time or the, the least worst thing. Yeah. There was never a good option. Yep. So thank you, Mark, for your lesson in history. There was never do- like door number three. No. Where there was a like a car. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, am I selling the car? Because yeah, I've yeah. done that. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. I've sold <laughs> Hopefully it was your car that you sold. Hey, well, sometimes. Not, not, not always. Sometimes they were between Scylla and Charybdis. That's right. <laughs> Finally, my father had to send a doctor out from my hometown who managed to get me back there in some way. And I was in bed about two months before I could venture out of the house. I stayed about town a couple of months more and then returned to, the, to resume my practice. I think I must have been thoroughly scared by what had happened, or by the doctor, or probably both, so that I did not touch a drink again until the country went dry. So what they're talking about here is prohibition, right? That's how far back this is. And I would encourage anyone that's reading through the book, read with another person. Read with someone that's read the book multiple times and understands the time period so that they can they can explain to you stuff like the... P word that Seth looked up and Scylla and Charybdis and also that the country's gone dry because nowadays that's just a that's a distant past right I mean thinking about not having alcohol at every corner store in America nowadays is like crazy talk but it was a big deal back then and so that's what he's talking about is when the country goes into prohibition or what I like to call it our history of hell yep Hell on earth. That's right. I could not. I would have immediately become a bootlegger. I know it. I know it. And and might have gotten rich. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of them did. Become president. (laughs) Yes, that's correct. His family. That's right. A bootlegger's family. Yes. They may have had a president's son, but I'm not sure about that. I might have also been one of those guys that like went blind in the woods from homemade moonshine, yeah. which did happen. If if you're if you're interested in some of the history stuff, look into some of the people that tried to make bathtub gin and some of the stuff that happened to them. They, it was bad news. That was like just a horrible horror. to lose your sight from one drink. That's when you know it's good. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's pretty good. I better have another. Yeah. <laughs> With the passing of the 18th Amendment, I felt quite safe. I knew everyone would buy a few bottles or cases of liquor as their extra... Uh, okay. What's that word? Extra queers? Extra... Hmm. We're, we're going to have to... I don't we're remember that from here. when I read it. I don't either. Otherwise, I, I would have underlined it. Okay, here. Where's it at? All right. Extra. I'm n- I didn't see that word. Um, with the passing... No, passing of the 18th Amendment. No, no. E C E X C H. With liquor as their E X Q U E R. X checkers. X checkers. 
It is. I knew everyone would buy a few bottles of white cases and look good as their edge checkers. Well, I have no idea. An important source of revenue to the Sultan's. Yeah. Tre it's tre it means treasury. Exchequer. How, how do you say it? Can you well, play it? Exchequer. Exchequer. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and yeah, and, and that's that means they're, it's the treas their treasury. They're yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh man, collection royal. Yeah, I like it. Cool. All right. One more time. With the passing of the 18th Amendment, I felt quite safe. I knew everyone would buy a few bottles or cases of liquor as their exchequers permitted, and that it would soon be gone. Therefore, it would make no great difference, even if I should do some drinking. At that time, I was not aware of the almost unlimited supply the government made it possible for us doctors to obtain. Bless and their heart. <laughs> Neither had I any knowledge of the bootlegger who soon appeared on the horizon. <laughs> I drank with moderation at first, but it took me only a relatively short time to drift back into the old habits, which had wound up so dis disastrously before. I love how he's just pointing out what all of America found out. He found out on his own, which is, yeah, it really wasn't that big of a deal. <laughs> we found a way around it in like five minutes, as a matter of fact. You just got to become a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Unlimited supply for doctors. Yeah. I like that. It was an anesthetic. Yeah. It is an anesthetic still to this day. Oldest known anesthetic to man, as a matter of fact. And I sure used it that way sometimes. Better to just numb out the day, you know? I don't want to face the fact that I peed my pants in front of my girlfriend's mother. I just would rather forget that and just kind of be numb to that. During the next few years, I developed two distinct phobias. One was the fear of not sleeping, and the other was the fear of running out of liquor. <laughs> That's a bad one. Yes. I love, too, his fear of not sleeping because he runs out of liquor. That's why I wouldn't sleep is because I ran out of liquor. I think that they're connected. Yeah. I could just be postulating here. I think I used that word correctly. But I think that for me, I, drinking was my 100% lights out to sleep. I, I totally used it like people use, I guess, Ambien nowadays. I don't know. I've never taken it, but I assume that you take it so you go lights out real quick. And that's what I used drinking for at the end. I was like, no, people would tell me like, yeah, I didn't sleep well last night. I'm like, did you drink a fifth? Because that'll, that'll just do it for you like that. <laughs> if you just chug it real fast while you're lying in bed, like within five minutes, you're out. And they're like, no, no, I didn't. I'm like, loser, loser. So you guys probably can't relate to this. Probably not. <laughs> but so I drank every single night for several decades. <laughs> yes. Which means I'm not in my 20s. Right. But um, early 30s. Supposedly. I would <laughs> I would take a drink to bed and put it on the nightstand. Yes. Because I I didn't I wasn't sure I was finished drinking yet. And I wasn't, you know, I might not fall asleep. Yeah. And so if I, if I didn't fall asleep, I need a little more liquor to kind of get me there. Yep. And so uh, <laughs> for a very, very long time, I would wake up every morning to a half full glass of 
a, a dark liquid of yep. some kind. And uh, that was, I, I, I didn't think there was anything wrong with that. Yep. I did the same thing. Uh, people, you know, usually have a glass of water by their bed. Yep. I would literally put vodka or gin in a water bottle. 100%. And have it by my bed because that looked normal. I yep. mean, nobody could tell the difference till your roommate takes a swig of it. You know, that's a different story. Then then you might have to switch up your method. Or your girlfriend. Yeah. Yeah. Or your mom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but... To be frank, I don't think anybody at that point is trying to drink after us, but we're worried about it. We're worried about it. I also, it sounds like we actually haven't talked about this before, and we kind of have this in common. I, but I was, I got pretty brazen in the end of my drinking. I was pretty like in your face with like, this is my life, and either accept it or get out of it, right? So I would have my bottle of vodka right next to the bed. I was just, I, I like straight drinking vodka. I prefer to chase it when I'm drinking, but usually right before bed, I'm so intoxicated it doesn't matter. And then almost always, I had a bottle in the bathroom. Now, can any of the class tell me why I might have a bottle in the bathroom? Because you're gonna get up and pee. And immediately follow that with throwing up and then chasing that down with a shot of vodka. It was my morning routine. I would put myself to sleep with alcohol. My body would wake me up very similar to Dr. Bob, I would start to have, I just thought that I was like becoming, that I was having poor sleeping habits. What I didn't know is my body was physically waking me up because it was craving more alcohol. So I'd get six hours of sleep and I'm like, man, I'm not sleeping well. So I'd get up, I'd go to the bathroom. As soon as my feet left the bed, I'm like, mm -hmm. and I run to the bathroom, I'd throw up. If I couldn't throw up, all I had to do was put a cigarette and as soon as the cotton would touch the tip of my lip, I don't know what it was about the dry cotton, but that would I would always throw up. As soon as it, I wouldn't have to lie, I'd just touch the end of my lip, and I'd throw up. And then, that's the best time to drink. I don't know if you know that. When you just threw up, nothing can block between you and bliss. There's not even bile left in there anymore. It's just, we're going to get downtown right away with this drink. And I would. I would drink, and then I'd start listening to James Brown music at 6 a.m., dancing in my underwear in my house at 6, like a crazy person, you know? But that's how I lived. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. We call that calling Earl on the big white telephone. <laughs> I've never heard that. Oh, not being a man of means, I knew that if I did not stay sober enough to earn money, I would run out of liquor. Most of the time, therefore, I did not take the morning drink, which I craved so badly, but instead would fill up on a large doses of sed sedatives to quiet the jitters, which distressed me terribly. Occasionally, I would yield to the morning craving, but if I did, it would be only be for a few hours before I would be quite unfit for work. This would lessen my chances of smuggling some home that evening, which in turn would mean a night of futile tossing around in bed followed by a morning of unbearable jitters. And I'm really grateful that this is the second time one of our founders talked about the word sedatives, right? He's just using a really blank term to describe the fact that, dude, he was on some stuff just to make it through, you know, and people were talking left and right about how, no, I got things together. I got I got handful of pills from the doctor. You know, he gave me the whatever, what's the stuff to where you can't throw or you'll throw up if you drink? Anabuse. Yeah. 
I'm on the Anabuse and he gave me Seroquel for my, my anxiety and this and that. And you're walking away and it's like, dude, you just named off 13 different pills. You're not okay. I want you to know that having 13 pills because of your condition doesn't mean you're in fit good shape. It's a bad sign. And that's what Dr. Bob here is saying. He's like, look, the only way I fought off the jitters was with a handful of sedatives to just get me by. And even then that didn't always work. Even then I gave in to the drink. So it, it says here that he would fill up on large doses of sedatives to quiet the jitters. Which distressed me greatly. <laughs> so, why do you think that was? Because there was so much. Because he was having to take drugs to keep from being an alcoholic mess. Okay. <laughs> All right. Get answered. Mark's like, okay, okay. <clears throat> Survey says. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> During the subsequent 15 years, I had sense enough to never go to the hospital if I'd been drinking. And very seldom did I receive patients. <laughs> Learn that lesson. Not doing that again. I would sometimes hide out in one of the clubs of which I was a member and had the habit at times of registering at a hotel under fictitious names. Mm. But my friends usually found me and I would go home if they promised that I should not be scolded. Oh, I hate getting scolded. <laughs> I do. So this is the first, and it will not be the last, and I, I am proud of Dr. Bob in a very sick, sick way. I'm proud of Dr. Bob. This guy has people so lined up and wound so tight around his finger, he's like, Oh, let me go home, but you can't make me feel bad. You, Seth, you can't make me feel Promise you will make me feel bad. And they're like, fine, just go home. This is not the this is the first, but it will not be the last time we're reading this story that he has people make promises to his drunk ass that they won't make him feel bad, that they won't take more than 15 minutes. I like the fact that it was 15 years of going through this. Mm. Before, I mean, so for the subsequent 15 years, it's like a decade and a half. Yep. You know, that he's... Uh, but he was so proud of himself because he didn't go to the hospital if he'd been drinking. Now he did go to a club or went to a hotel or something. Right. But <laughs> I, I, I didn't say he didn't drink. He just said he didn't go to the hospital yeah. when he was drinking. Yeah. I didn't go to operate. That's right. Yeah. On people. No, no knife. Yeah. Not yet. If my wife was planning to go out in the afternoon, I would get a large supply of liquor and smuggle it home and hide it in the coal bin, the clothes chute, over door jams. Over beams in the cellar and in cracks in the cellar tile. That <laughs> sounds like a big game of hide and seek. Yes. Those are some good spots. Yeah. Yeah, he's naming off some ones well, I had never thought of. But I like the fact that, I mean, it's a fairly large supply if you, if you need six places to, to, yeah. to hide it all. Yeah. He's doing well for himself. He's getting a big crate and he's prepping. I mean, this is an alcoholic 101 prepping it, hiding it all over the house. And what, let me ask you a question. And listener, I'm going to pause for just a moment so you can give your own answer as well. Why do you hide it in more than one place? In case they find one. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Jackpot. There's a reason you have six because the white might find five, but if yeah. she only finds five, you still got one, baby. Absolutely. I also, go ahead. Go ahead. I also made use of old trunks and chests the old con 
the old can container, and even the ash container. The water tank on the toilet I never used. Good man! Because that looked too easy. I found out later that my wife inspected it frequently. He was right. He was right. So with this, he's, he's putting it in the ash container. Do you know what that means? So they've got this, say you got like a fireplace, you smoke a bunch of cigarettes, whatever it is. He's got a giant thing of just ash that he's putting. This actually, when I read it, it kind of made me sad that I never thought to hide a bottle in the trash. Because who's crazy enough to look for liquor in the trash? But I'll tell you who's not sane enough to not get that liquor out later and drink it. And that's this guy. And when I read it, I was like, it's it's the perfect plan. It's like Ocean's Eleven style hiding right there. You could just drop it and it just... Pff, I'll just take it. Ash. Put it... I, of course, I've thought this through. I thought... When I have the thought, I have to alcoholically think it through. Even though I'm super sober. So... You wrap it in a trash. Hear me out. <laughs> this is not crazy. Hear me out. So <laughs> I'm going to do what Dr. Bob does later. He's like, thoughts, thoughts. So you get the trash bag. You put it in its own trash bag, right? Because I don't want to get germs on the sacred juice, mm-hmm. right? I then put it at the bottom, strategically facing to where the top, the, the top with the, the lid on it is facing that way, facing down towards the bottom. And there's method to this, right? So then you put other trash on top of it, normal trash. When it gets done, you're gonna take out the trash. You go outside, turn it over when you're putting it in the dumpster. All you have to do, cut open the top. There's that perfect top. You just pull it right out. Bingo, all the trash stays in the trash can. You got a fresh bottle. Nothing alcoholic about that thought process whatsoever. No, that's great. (laughs) Oh, we are some sick puppies. I used to put 8 or 12 ounce bottles of alcohol in a fur-lined glove and toss it into the back airing porch when winter days got dark enough. My bootlegger had hidden alcohol at the back steps where I could get it at my convenience. How thoughtful. <laughs> that's not, yeah, that's a good that's bootlegger. customer there. service. That's there. right. Delivery. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes I would bring it in my pocket. Sometimes I would bring it in my pockets, but they were inspected, and that became too risky. (laughs) (laughs) I used to also put it up in four-ounce bottles and stick several in my stocking tops. This worked nicely until my wife and I went to see Wallace Wallace Beery and Tugboat Annie, after which the pant leg and stocking racket were out. That's right. (laughs) So Mark and I had to look this up, because... We, I mean, we're doing our best that we can to translate this 1930 jargon, and there is a lot of it in this story, but I would encourage you as a listener not to be scared off by that. You just got to do your research. So the first thing I want to talk about is this, how he is so unfared upon by his wife. I mean, she's checking his pockets, guys. Where's the trust? You know, where's she's checking the top of the toilets? I mean, what is this? prison (laughs) she's doing all this so he he's got this idea that he's going to keep it in his stockings and mark and i were kind of going back and forth and mark explain to me what a stocking is how that works yeah so the in the old days this before they had this high-tech elastic uh yeah you know that built in the sock yeah they would they would pull the socks up way high 
but they'd have to hold them in place with something. Mm -hmm. So they'd have like a big rubber band they'd put around the top. Yes. To hold them, to keep them from falling down. Yeah. So that they could take these bottles and place them strategically underneath yes. the rubber band around their leg. Awesome. And I think that's like, I, I used to have a friend years ago, and he told me that he would uh, go to work in the morning and he would put a half pint in each of his boots. Yes. <laughs> And then at lunchtime, he would throw the empties away and put two more half pints in there. God bless him. And uh, and that was the way that he made it through work each day. Well, he might have had gastric issues, he, he, which lasted only several hours when he could find relief. That's exactly right. So this was this move. This move, Tugboat Annie, uh, was released in 1933. Yep. So it was fairly new. So this was current material when the book was written in That's 1939. Right. Yeah, so he takes his wife to see this movie, and one of the characters in the movie, one of the main characters, is this guy who's got a drinking problem, right? And it's one of the reasons why, I think they like crashed their tugboat. Me and Mark looked up the details, yeah. but I assure you, we're not gonna go and watch it. I assure you, we have no plans on ever watching Tugboat Annie. You think it's on DVD? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we can find the real to real that still has it. I'm, I'm sure there's a film buff out there that's a little offended by that, but whatever. So, in this movie, there's this alcoholic character. He takes his wife to the movies because he's good. He's good, good guy. husband, good yep. guy. And I mean, she's checking his pockets. I would have left her at home, but he takes her. To, <laughs> he takes her to the movies, right? Because he's a good dude. And then they see this alcoholic character who Mark and I can only imagine is doing the same thing. He's hiding. He's got to be hiding alcohol in his socks. Why else would this movie has have ruined his sock idea unless in the movie it shows him doing the same thing and he's like, the jig is up. Right. Damn it. Yeah. <laughs> I will not take space to relate all my hospital or sanitarium experiences. You won't? <laughs> besides, besides the 12 you already had? Yes. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I'm going right. to keep it short. Yeah, I yeah. love it. So if this was a hour-long speaker talk, Dr. Bob is giving us a 56-minute drunkalogue. Yeah. Just FYI. But frankly, it's needed for him. It's needed to explain just how bad it was. Like, I'm not some rich doctor who just had a drinking problem and this guy came in a week. This has been going on for years. I built my life up. I burn it down. I built my life up, I burn it down. Now it's to the point to where I can't even take my wife to the movies with me because she's seeing all my tricks. Like, that's bad. During all this time, we became more and less ostracized by our friends. We could not be invited out because I would surely get tight and my wife dared not invite people in for the same reason. My phobia for sleeplessness demanded that I get drunk every night, but in mm. order to get more liquor for the next night, I had to stay sober during the day, at least up to 4 o'clock. <laughs> this routine went on with few interruptions for 17 years. Damn. It was, a really, it was really a horrible nightmare, this earning money, getting liquor, smuggling at home, getting drunk, morning jitters, taking large doses of sedatives to make it possible for me to earn money, and so on ad nauseum. I used to promise my wife my friends and my children that I would drink no more. Promises which seldom kept me sober even through the day, though I was very sincere when I made them. And yeah. I can relate to that. Yeah. I, I made promises to quit hundreds of times. With and without the solemn vow. That's yeah. right. So here he's talking about the nightmare. 
And this is the part where it starts to reference the nightmare. The nightmare is just the drinking hell of daily drinking, right? Of not being able to sleep, so I got to drink. I got to get up in the morning. I got to sneak it. I got to make money. And you notice, too, that he says in here the only way that he can make money is to dope himself up as much as possible so he can be there at work until 4 o'clock. It's so bad that he's having to take heavy doses of sedatives just to be there long enough to pay the bills. For the benefit of those experimentally inclined, I should mention the so-called beer experiment. <laughs> oh boy. If you guys haven't done this, we, do, <laughs> we, we, we gotta separate. When beer first came back, I thought that I was safe. I could drink all I wanted of that. It was harmless. Nobody ever got drunk on beer. <laughs> yeah. You know who says stuff like that? An alcoholic. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Only alcoholics say nobody has got drunk off beer. If you've ever been to one baseball game in your life, I assure you know that's not true. <laughs> I assure you know that's not true. So I filled the cellar full with the permission of my good wife. It was not long before I was drinking at least a case and a half a day. I put on 30 pounds of weight in about two months. Looked like a pig and was uncomfortable from shortness of breath. It then occurred to me that after one, after one was all smelled up in beer, <clears throat> it then occurred to me that after one was all smelled up with beer, nobody could tell what had been drunk. So I began to fortify my beer with straight alcohol. Oh. Of course, the result was very bad, and that, <laughs> and that ended my beer experiment. That is gross. So he gets this idea that if I'm just drinking beer, I smell like crap. Everybody knows I smell like crap, but I just smell like beer crap. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to add a little toddy in with my beer. And if you, I know you're an alcoholic, so you've heard these sayings, the whole, like, I don't even know what it, liquor before beer and you're in the clear or whatever. None beer of that. Before liquor, never sick. Yeah. First of all, none of that's ever true the way that we drink because we drink too much, period. So we'll always get sick. However, if you've ever done both, you know it's bad news bears, especially if you're mixing them. And that's what he's talking about here. Oh my Lord. Gross. The Boilermaker kind of deal. Oh my gosh. There's a little word in here I just looked up that kind of snuck up on me, but uh, when he was describing his routine, which went uninterrupted, went on with few interruptions for 17 years, it said, you know, he was doing all these things, earning money, getting liquor, smuggling, and getting drunk. And it said, uh, and so on, ad nauseum. Mm-hmm. Ad nauseum refers to something that has been done or repeated so often that it becomes annoying. Yep. And I would think that would be fairly annoying yeah. to go through that thing over and over, that same ritual of things. It's logical for an alcoholic. For an alcoholic. Not to the normal person. The normal person would say, why don't you just quit? Yep. Not possible. Yeah. If I could, I would have already. That's right. Yeah. So with that being said, there is something that I wanted to talk about as far as the nightmare, just from my own personal experience. So 
When Dr. Bob is talking about all the things that he has to do on a daily basis, he's talking about how I got to wake up, I got to get drunk, I got to muster through work just to pay the bills. And he's talking about this nightmare. And now Mark is talking about ad nauseum, that this thing that just happens over and over and over is so annoying. That's how it was for me. Living that spiritual death of just every day, I felt like this drunk loser zombie that it's like the same motions every day. To me, that was worse than the worst, like the, the high tips of my worst moments was just at the end, nothing bad was really happening to me. It was just that I'm doing the same crap every day. My drinking's pathetic. I drink at the, in the night by myself all alone in this little roach-ridden studio apartment and I wake up the next day and I do it again. I can't make my life better. It just continuously is this nightmare. And that's what Dr. Bob is talking about. So I related to that on a personal level. With that, that's going to end the first part of our episode. Thanks for hanging in there with us. We've got one more part to do here on the story of Dr. Bob. And we will see you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So long. <laughs> Awesome.